This morning we gather around God's Word, Genesis 12. We are in the book of Genesis, chapter 12. I would invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptures to Genesis chapter 12. If you do not have a copy, a hard copy of the scriptures, we're going to put the scriptures on the screens for you to follow along. And if you need a Bible, I say this often enough, if you need a Bible, come and see me. I will gladly help you get a Bible if you need a Bible so that you can use it throughout the week, read it throughout the week, and bring it to church with you on Sundays. Genesis chapter 12, I would like to invite you to stand with me out of honor for God's word. Genesis 12, starting in verse 10, and I'm going to read down all the way through chapter 13, verse 1. Genesis 12, verse 10 through 13, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you again this morning, acknowledging that you are supreme above all. You are the creator of all. You are the sustainer of all. Your word is true. Your promises are reliable. Everything that we need to know and see, you have given us in your word. Lord, we believe this. Help now our unbelief. We know that your word is true. We know that your word presents to us reality as it really is. But we struggle to believe that. This world with its false narratives, this world with its allurements and enticements, we tend to believe other things than what you have said. So Lord, we come to you this morning asking that you would open our eyes, unplug our ears, give us 
hearts to believe what you've said and embrace these truths and plant ourselves in what you have said over against everything else. And we give you the glory for this, we pray in your name. Amen. Children, we have a lot of children here with us. And it's wonderful. I love hearing the children. I love the noises they make. I love the fact that they drop things on the floor in the middle of the sermon. I love that. And you think, well, no, you don't. Yes, I do. Because it means they're here. And they're hearing God's word. And they're with God's people. It's wonderful. I remember when I was six years old, I used to drop things all the time. Right? It's hard to sit in a service this long and not drop things occasionally. Children, I'm talking to you. Has anyone ever made you a promise? Has anyone, maybe your mom or dad, maybe a teacher, maybe grandparents, has anyone ever made you a promise and then not kept that promise? <laughs> never. No, it's never happened. Wow. The Robinsons just volunteered to teach our next parenting class. That's right. Let me ask you this, children. Have you ever made a promise to someone and you failed to keep it? We all make promises. We all make promises and we all fail often to keep those promises. If you are married, and not all of us are married here, but those of us who are married here, we understand what it means to make promises and to be faithless or unfaithful in those promises. Who, who, could, who could stand here and tell me that you have kept all of your wedding vows? I mean, even if you've only been married a week, who could stand here and tell me that you have kept those solemn promises and oaths that you made in front of people even? You stood up in front of a whole crowd of people and made promises that you intended to keep, but you have not kept. You've not been faithful, and your spouse has not been faithful to you in every way. We make promises and we don't keep them. People make us promises and they forget. Sometimes promises are made with the intention not to keep those promises. You ever been the recipient of one of those promises? Somebody makes you a promise and you know very well that they're just trying to manipulate you. They're trying to get their way. They have no intention of actually keeping that promise. We live in a world where people like to make promises, like to talk about our word being our bond and all of that jazz, but we know that people are not faithful. The givers of promises don't keep them. The recipients of promises experience the betrayal and the hurt 
of those failed promises when they're not kept. I want you to know, children, I want you to hear this. You live in a world of promise-making and promise-breaking. But, and this is what I want you to hear, there is one who makes promises and he always keeps them. Always. And that is God. God has spoken and he has made wonderful promises, unbelievable promises, incredible promises. And God always keeps his promises. Last week we saw God's promises to a man named Abram. If you weren't here with us, God chooses a man named Abram out of what was Babylonia. He chooses Abram, an idol worshiper, and he gives Abram promises. He makes Abram wonderful promises. He says, Abram, I will make you a great nation. Abram, I will bless you. Abram, I will make your name great. Those who bless you, Abram, I will bless. Those who curse you, Abram, I will curse. And all the families of the earth will find blessing in you. Those are amazing promises. When you hear those promises, if you're honest, when you hear those promises, have you ever thought, well, that's, that's nice for Abram. That's nice for Abram that God visited him and gave him promises. That's a nice story. But what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with my life? I need relevant truth today. I need God to speak to me today. Don't give me all of this about Abram. What about me and what about now? I need a fresh word, not just a bunch of promises to a dead guy over 4,000 years ago. But did you hear what, were, what was included in those promises? Did you hear? I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And in all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. The promises God makes to Abram are for the entire world. And that's you and me. Abram becomes the center figure in God's salvation plan. God is reversing the curse of Genesis 1 through 11. He is re reversing the curse of sin and death. And Abram is the man he has chosen to bring that salvation through. Abram is the key to the story of Scripture. And he's the key for you understanding how God intends to bless you. With the calling of Abram, the plan of redemption, God's plan of redemption begins to 
unfold. And at this point in the narrative, the narrative, the story in Genesis slows way down. So Genesis 1 through 11 covers, 11 chapters covers over 2,000 years of human history. From Genesis 12 to Genesis 25 or so, we're going to have less than 100 years. So more chapters devoted to a much, short, much shorter amount of time, which tells us this needs to be paid attention to. The life of Abram draws the focus. The events and actions surrounding his life are of central importance. God gives commands to Abram with promises, great promises, he tells Abram to go from his place and his kindred and his family and be a blessing to the earth. And Abram does it. We saw that last week. Abram believes God's promises and therefore he goes. He obeys. He shows us that faith is seen in obedience. Faith is demonstrated in our worship, even in the midst of difficulty and hardship, our faith is seen in our continued obedience and worship. And this is Abram. Abram responds to the promises like Noah before him did not hesitate to go forth in obedience. Last week we also saw that there were two other characters. So Abram was the focus of last week's message. Abram and his promises that he received from God and his obedience and worship in response to those promises. But we also saw two more characters introduced, Sarai, Abram's wife, and Lot. Sarai is his wife, and she is barren. That means she cannot have children. And Lot is the son of his dead brother. It seems that Lot has become, in effect, Abram's responsibility. Abram's son. And these two characters are going to be very important for us as we continue to read. Implicit in those promises that God gives to Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make your name great. Implicit in that is this idea of offspring. I'm going to give you offspring. You can't, you can't have a nation unless you have a son, right? And land. And these promises of offspring and land are going to be the focus of the next couple of chapters. So now we turn, with all of that in our minds, we turn to the first account of Abram as God's chosen man to bring salvation and blessing to the world. His first story, the first story of Abram after he's been chosen to be the patriarch of God's people and bring salvation to the world, we come to the first account of Abram's life that we have. What do we see at the very beginning? Look at it there, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So this account of Abram's life begins with a very challenging situation. This is not the blessing that had been promised to Abram. Abram is in the land 
that God has promised him. He's worshiping God there, but now the land is experiencing a famine. So, the text tells us, Abram makes a decision. Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. So, presented with this challenging situation, there's great famine in the land, severe famine in the land. Abram decides to go down to Egypt. Now, the narrator, and this, this might bug some of you, but the narrator doesn't tell us explicitly whether or not what Abram does is the right or wrong thing. The narrator doesn't tell us explicitly whether or not Abram was sinning in going down to Egypt. But see, I think we can ascertain very clearly that this decision was indeed the wrong decision. A key here for this is the word sojourn. This was not just a short trip down to Egypt. This was not a trip down to Egypt to gather some supplies and then come back. Abram plans to go and stay there for some time. He is forsaking the land that God had promised to him. He's forsaking the place of worship and obedience and going down to Egypt. And as the Old Testament will show us, as the Old Testament unfolds, and, and, and true, this, this is true, if we're going to understand the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, if we're going to understand the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch and the Old Testament and even the whole Bible, we've got to understand these promises that God makes to Abram. They become very important as an interpretive grid for us. As the Old Testament will show us, when God's people decide to sojourn in lands that he has not promised them, this is never a good thing. Consider also what God clearly says in his word. God provides for his people, even in famine. This is what he does later for the people of Israel as they walk through the wilderness, is it not? As they go through the wilderness, this is, this is part of their faith in him. He supplies what they need from the heavens. He provides for Elijah in the midst of a great famine. He even provides for the widow woman in Sidon too. So, so this idea that famine will keep me from God's promises, this is just not true. If God has promised that he will preserve you, he will. Famine or no. And this is a lesson that God's people need to see. Listen to Psalm 33. This is said explicitly in Psalm 33. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. That is his covenant-keeping faithfulness. Those who hope in his covenant-keeping faithfulness, he will deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Psalm 33, 18 and 19. Our soul waits for the Lord, it continues to say. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Abram turns to Egypt 
to put his trust. Instead of putting his trust in the one who has made him promises. Now this man, Abram, has already believed the promises of God and obeyed. But when his family and his flocks begin to go hungry, when the ache of hunger takes hold, at this point, he forgets God's promises and turns to Egypt. I think this is a, a really good point to stop and make sure that we realize that the stories of the Old Testament the stories of the Old Testament are not meant to teach us morals. The Old Testament saints are examples for us. Indeed, they are examples for us, and the New Testament uses them as such. Hebrews 11. Hear Hebrews 11, it's just brief assessment of Abraham. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went out to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram had great faith, Hebrews 11 tells us. And that faith is inspiring and instructive to all of us who are God's people, isn't it? But the Old Testament, the Old Testament will tell us the complete story. It's not that the New Testament's lying to us. No, the New Testament's wanting us to see something very clearly. The New Testament wants us to see what faith looks like. The Old Testament, though, presents to us a fuller picture these heroes, quote-unquote, these heroes of the faith are deeply flawed and sinful and self-dependent and arrogant and unwise, etc., etc., etc. The Old Testament will show us the other part of the story. So we shouldn't approach the Old Testament and say, you know, we should be like Abram. Or we should be like Moses. Or we should be like David. Look at their lives. Do you think that the point is that we should be like them? No, no. The point is we are like them. And they are like us. Because they are people. Do you understand what I'm saying? The point is more we are already like them. We share a whole lot in common with them. And this should encourage us. We're going to see that at the end of all of it, at the end of all God's plans for salvation, God is the one to be glorified in this plan of salvation, not man. Abram's not the point. God is. And his plans to save and to bless the world. These deeply sinful, weak men and women are going to show us that God does not reserve his promises for the exceptional or the special or those who in some way earn it. But he makes and keeps his promises to sinful man. 
sinners like you and me. Weak, fragile, sinful. The New Testament holds them up as examples of faith for us, while the Old Testament shows their, their fragility and sinfulness. The Abram who had demonstrated faith that's highlighted in Hebrews 11 is the same Abram who went down to Egypt. In other words, if Abram, get this, if Abram can have faith, if, if Abram can have faith, so can you and I. You and I can have faith too. Abram is not special. He's no different than you and me. Abram received promises from God and so have we. Abram was tempted to put his trust in Egypt and so are we. This is the point. So Abram heads down to Egypt. And this neglect of God's promises, this disbelief, leads to a chain of events. It leads to a chain reaction that will further expose Abram's heart. As they are on their way to Egypt, did you see it there? Before they arrive in the land of Egypt, Abram stops and has a conversation with Sarai's wife. Apparently, Sarai, at 65 years old, is stunningly beautiful. Now, this has caused a lot of commentators to debate. There's one preacher I read this last week. As one preacher says, the good news is that you can be 65 and still be really beautiful. The bad news is that commentators have a hard time believing this. Yeah. That's the way it works. I was reading one commentary this week that quoted John Calvin. Now, John Calvin's wonderful, right? John Calvin's great. We go to John Calvin for a lot of things. This, though, is not one of them, okay? I was, I was reading this quote from John Calvin. John Calvin has a take on how Sarai maintained her youthful beauty. This is what John Calvin says. Calvin attributes her beauty to the fact that she had never had children. That's what Calvin says. It's John Calvin. She's able to say really beautiful because she didn't have kids. No, John Calvin, we have to disagree with you on that one. But I digress. Abram, Abram, aware of Sarai's beauty, believes that when they go down to Egypt, Pharaoh will see her or someone will see her in power and want her for themselves. Apparently, this is a real thing. Ancient morality, I learned this this week, ancient morality held adultery as a crime worthy of death. It did not look favorably. Ancient morality did not look favorably upon adultery. However, it was often the case that if you saw a woman who was the wife of another man, you didn't want to take her commit adultery with her, so you would just kill the man so that you could keep your conscience intact. Abram believes, and probably for good reason, that his life will be forfeit because of Sarai's beauty. So he comes up with a plan. Listen to this conversation he has with her. I mean, just sit in this conversation for a second. Think about what he's saying. He says to Sarai, Sarai, say you are my sister. 
that it will go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. And we're going to find out later on that Sarai is indeed his half-sister. They shared the same father, but listen to the plan that Abram concocts. Listen to this. When they recognize your beauty and want you for themselves, lie to them. Tell them that you're my sister, not my wife. Tell them that you're unattached so that my life will be spared. Give up your life, Sarai, to save me. Abram sacrifices his wife to save his own skin. And this wasn't in the heat of the moment, right? This wasn't with people crashing in the doors. Who is this woman? I don't know. I think she's my sister, you know? No, he premeditates this. He premeditates this plan. He's expecting to lose his wife permanently. He's going to give up his wife forever to save his neck. And that seems okay to him. I heard one guy this week talking about this story on a podcast. Actually, I was listening to it for something else and they actually brought up the story. And he says, Abram is a guy I wouldn't even want to have dinner with. Think about this guy. He's ready to sell out his wife. How, how are we supposed to see this action of Abram? Well, the next scene confirms exactly what Abram thought about his wife. She was apparently very beautiful. And the princes of the land see her and they commend her. They praise her to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you've got to see this woman. Sarai, being apparently unattached, then is taken by Pharaoh into his harem. Not only that, but as a sign of favor towards Sarai's brother, Pharaoh gives Abram great wealth. Now you read that list there. Oxen, male donkeys, male servants, sheep, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. You read that and you're like, well, it's not, not what I would call great wealth, but in those days, listen, he is making Abram a very, very rich man. Pharaoh pours out wealth upon Abram. Abram, get this, Abram is enlarged materially as a result of his deception. As a result of his cowardice, as a result of his failure to protect his wife. By the way, when you, when you see that, do you hear a little bit Adam's failure to protect his wife Eve? Abram's not much better than Adam is. Abram fails to protect his wife. He fails to believe the promises. And as a result, he is greatly rewarded. He's greatly rewarded in his failure. This should make you go, what? That doesn't make sense. And to add to this, it doesn't go well for Pharaoh. The Lord, it says, afflicts Pharaoh. 
Abram is enlarged, but Pharaoh is cursed. His house is afflicted with great plagues because he has taken Sarai from Abram. And notice clearly the text says Sarai is Abram's wife. You see, God's perspective on reality is the only one that matters. You can say she's your sister, Abram, but my perspective says something different. Pharaoh takes Abram's wife, and because of that, he is afflicted. Now, maybe, maybe, your, maybe your sense goes, but that's not fair. Pharaoh's innocent. He didn't know. Abram lied. What kind of crazy world is this, Genesis 12? Abram is faithless and deceives and is blessed. Pharaoh is innocent and he is afflicted. Well, Pharaoh at some point realizes the, the cause of his affliction. He realizes the source of the problem and he calls Abram before him. Look at what Pharaoh says to Abram. What is this that you have done to me? I hope this sounds familiar to you. This is exactly what God asks Eve in Genesis 3. This is exactly what God asked Cain in Genesis 4. Now Pharaoh asks of Abram, what is this that you have done? This parallel is not accidental. And all three of these great failures, the failure of Eve, the failure of Cain, and the failure of Abram all lead to being sent out. Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden. Cain was sent away from the land and from God's presence to wander the earth. Abram too is sent out. Did you see it there? He is sent out. Pharaoh says, here, here's your wife. Take and go. And Pharaoh sent him out with all that he had. You see the difference? Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, the land that God had promised to bless them in. Cain is sent out of the land and away from God's blessing to wander the earth and curse. But when Abram sins, just like Adam and Eve, just like Cain, when Abram sins, he is sent out back to the land of promise. God keeps his promises to Abram even when Abram sins. Something radically different has taken place in Genesis 12. Before this, when man sins, he is exiled and cursed, experiences death, but now, because of God's promises, man, even when he sins, even when he acts like all men act, even when he sins, God is going to stay faithful to his promises. Something in the story has changed. Sin no longer ruins the promises that God has made. The promises remain intact. Truly, what we have before us here in Genesis 12 is what I would call a type scene, okay? A type scene. Egypt is a real place. Abram's journey and horrible decisions are real. The blessings and curses are real. 
But more than the reality of these events, the story sets a type for us, for God's people, that will be replayed over and over and over again. In fact, two more times in Genesis chapter 20 and chapter 26, you will see a very similar story to this one. Where one of the patriarchs gives up his wife for the sake of his own neck. In this same idea, Egypt becomes synonymous with forgetting or forsaking the promises of God. If Canaan land, where God has promised blessing, if Canaan land is the place where God's people experience rest and worship, then Egypt becomes the place of great trial and temptation, of failure. And those who know the story well can see this. I have to expect some of you don't know the story all that well. Later in Genesis, we will see this same. There will be a great famine in the land. And God's people, the children of Abram and Isaac and Jacob, they will go down into the land to relieve their burden, their distress. Their, their God will rescue them and bring them out once again in the Exodus. God's people go to Egypt in doubt and failure in the face of discomfort and trial, but God rescues his people from Egypt. Egypt becomes key to the biblical story and a type of sin and its enslavement. Again, when you forget the promises of God and fall into sin, you go down to Egypt. But God remembers his people in Egypt and will deliver them. Later in the Old Testament, Babylon will become a type of Egypt. This is where God's people are exiled to Babylon is a, another type of Egypt, and God must deliver his people from this bondage. Not to lose you or confuse you, but this is what we see played out beautifully in the life of Jesus. Stay with me just for a second here. I'm just going to stay on this point very briefly. In Matthew 2, in the first couple of years of Jesus' life, Joseph and Mary and Jesus flee from Herod. Where do they go? They go to Egypt. So what, does that mean they're not believing God's promises? No, no, this is because God, the scripture says in Matthew 2, will deliver his son from Egypt. The deliverance from Egypt becomes synonymous for deliverance from sin and death. Jesus comes up out of Egypt because God has acted finally to deliver his people from sin and death. And he will accomplish that deliverance through his son, Jesus Christ. God delivers. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Jesus is the shoot of new life that will restore the dead stump of David's house and bring final salvation for God's people. 
You see, God's plans of redemption said this a minute ago. God's plans of redemption are not dependent upon man. The failures of men will not detour God's promises in Christ. Have you ever, have you ever been disillusioned with man? Have you ever been disillusioned with a man or men that you respected at some point? A leader or a figure that you look to for inspiration or direction? Maybe a father. Maybe a teacher or a pastor. Then as you get to know him, you find out some more about his life and you realize this guy is horribly flawed and sinful. Even grossly sinful, perhaps. Think about the church. Think about the church and its history. You ever want to be discouraged about something? Just read church history. Read about all the failures of church history and all the men that tried to take power for themselves and all the abuses. By the way, and I, I, I don't want to get into this, but if someone's response to that is, yes, down with patriarchy. <laughs> uh, no, see, women are the same. We're all sinful. It's not man. It's not man alone that has this problem. It's all of mankind. We all demonstrate it over and over and over again. Who among us isn't tempted? Who among us can say that we remember and live in light of God's promises continually? Can anyone say that you remember and have front and center God's promises every day? No, as we are discouraged by the failures of people and as we are discouraged by our own failures, remember, it is God's work of salvation, not man's. Men will fail and always fail. God never fails to keep his promises. As we look at church history and we are discouraged by the failures of people, as failures of men primarily, we must get our eyes off of men, get our eyes off of these people we put on pedestals and get our eyes back on the God of the promises, get our eyes back on his son, Jesus Christ. When I sit down in the counseling room with people, it's often that people just want to talk about all the ways people have failed them. People have mistreated me. People have disappointed me. People have failed me. People have sinned against me. Yes. Yes, they have. And you have participated in that sin as well. Because this is our condition. This is who we are. Yes, you've been mistreated. But you know who has not mistreated you? God, who's made you great promises in Christ. He has not mistreated you. What do you deserve from him? What do you deserve from God? Nothing but wrath. Nothing but his judgment. That's what we deserve. 
And yet, what has he done? He has removed judgment. He has removed wrath. And instead, he has poured out upon you blessing in Christ. See, as long as we are looking at the failures of people or even our own failures, as long as our eyes are on the failures of man, our eyes cannot be on God and his promises and on his faithfulness. Look to his faithfulness even this morning. Remember what he has said. Embrace it as true. We are all tempted like Abram to forsake the promises of God for more immediate promises of relief, right? We are all tempted to forget what God has promised us. The promises of God seem far off. The promises of God seem irrelevant to my situation. The promises of God don't seem to be meeting my real needs. Many of us, all of us, all of us say, this is too difficult. This situation, this circumstance, this happening in my life, it is too difficult. I'm going down to Egypt for a little while. I'm going to go down to Egypt for a little while where I can get some relief. God's promise is sure, but those are far off and irrelevant. What I really need right now is fill in the blank. That's your Egypt. What is your Egypt that you turn to over and over and over again for promise deliverance, for your immediate needs? We're all, promise it. We're, all, we're all tempted to forsake God's promises and go down to Egypt. We're all tempted, aren't we, to take matters into our own hands? We look at the situation we do all our calculations and we take matters into our own hands. When the promises of God seem far off or impossible, we're not meeting my needs given the current situation. We all turn to our own wisdom, don't we? But as we read earlier, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. But then we always forget verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. We're all tempted to take matters into our own hands. Trust in our own understanding. Our own wisdom and schemes to preserve ourselves. We're all tempted to fear God's provision. Won't actually meet what we really need. We doubt that we will be provided for. And we are all tempted. We're all tempted to use those that we should cherish and protect for our own preservation and well-being. We are all tempted with Abram to sacrifice others that we should love on the altar of our own self-preservation. This is what we do. Give up yourself that it may go well with me. Isn't that the essence of not loving our neighbor? Isn't that the essence of not loving those in our household? Give up yourself 
that I may be blessed, that it will go well with me. How many times have we sacrificed others? Our own well-being, our own comfort matters much more to us than the basic, simple responsibility of cherishing those that God has given us to cherish. The simple responsibility of cherishing our wives and our children. We neglect them and sacrifice them for our own comfort and ease. We're all tempted to lie and deceive and twist the truth to protect ourselves. That's who we are. Are we not all fickle? Are we not all fragile? Is it not our experience that one day his promises seem so real and tangible? I wouldn't forsake him for all the world as we come to church and we sing those promises, right? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Yes, we sing that. I wouldn't leave God for anything. And then the very next hour, the very next day, it's as if the pull of sin and doubt is so real and powerful that I cannot stand. The songs of yesterday don't seem to ring true today. And I leave. Some of you experienced that dynamic even this very morning. As you sinned against your spouse or your children on the way to church. Or maybe it was just sin and doubt and hatred even creeping into your heart. Bitterness at others in the church even. But then you come to church and you hear the songs and you hear the word read and you raise your hand in worship saying, God, forgive me. Forgive me for all my sin against you. Oh, why did I ever doubt you? Why did I ever harbor that sin in my heart against others? And you raise your hands in worship. And then by this afternoon, you will have forgotten and you will raise your voice again sinfully, sarcastically towards your children. How can all of this be true? How can this actually be our experience? We're all like Abram. This is who we are. Genesis 12 tells our story. But you see, that, that's the point. That's the point of the whole thing. While it is possible, even probable, for us to forget God's promises in Christ, while it is possible, even probable, for us to live contrary to these promises and sin against the God who has promises everything in Christ, while it's possible, even probable, that we will fail, it is not possible, ever, that God will forget his promises. God has promised and he will keep his promises. We forget, we fail, but God never does. He will bring forth his promises just as he has said.
And the way that we must navigate this life is that we must seek every day to remember what he has promised to us. Make this, make his promises our food and our hope and our joy. And when we forget, I guarantee you when you forget, you will go down to Egypt and it will, start, it will start a chain reaction of events that will lead you to places that you will be ashamed of. What's the answer? See God's faithfulness to you in Christ and return to his promises that he has made you and live in them as if they are true because they are. He will keep his promises in Christ. And when I fail, he keeps his promises. And when I forget, he keeps his promises. And when I sin, he keeps his promises, and even scandalously so, because his promises of salvation are not about me, but they are about his glory. And this reality doesn't make me want to sin. If anything I've said to you today makes you want to sin, Oh, he keeps his promises to me? Even if I sin? Woo! God and sin! Obviously not. His faithfulness doesn't make you want to sin, does it? No. It makes you want to stay true to him because he is faithful. His promises of salvation are for his glory. And that doesn't make me want to sin, but creates in me a desire to flee from Egypt and to rest in the land of his promises, in Jesus, my rest. That him come thou fount of every blessing. One of my favorite hymns, the line in that hymn, Oh, to grace, how great a de debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. And then here's the line. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's, that's the song. That's the truth that we must sing every day. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it with your promises. Seal it for thy courts above. And he will remain faithful. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for Genesis 12, the picture that it paints for us of man's failure and man's weakness and man's gross sin. But the picture it also paints to us of your faithfulness. You chose to bless Abram and you will bless him in spite of himself. You will protect him even and especially when he forsakes that protection, seeks to live by his own wisdom. And this is how you have treated us in your son, Jesus. You have given your son 
to take our sin, to take our wrath, to pay for our sin. You have removed guilt from us. We are no longer guilty before you. We no longer must live under the enslavement of sin, the power of sin. We have been freed, and yet we forget that. We don't believe that. We live as if that's not true. Lord, we know it's true. Help us now. Help us to live in the truth of your promises. And when we fail to realize and to recognize your forgiveness, your grace towards us, your love towards us, and that that would not drive us further into sin, but that would drive us away from sin and back to you. Thank you, Lord, for your word to us, your preservation of us, your faithfulness to us. We pray this in your name, amen.